This talk was given by Vanessa Zuise Goddard Sensei. Zuise Sensei is a lay teacher in the Mountains and Rivers Order. This talk, like all of her talks, is offered free of charge. If you'd like to make a donation to find out more about her teachings or to join her mailing list, please visit her website at vanessazuisegoddard.org. Thanks for listening. I would like to speak about belonging about that place or state that all of us yearn for, really, this um, kind of intrinsic feeling of rightness, of not being apart from, of being utterly, profoundly accepted by what, by whom. Certainly by ourselves, But we also, you know, we want to be accepted by others. And so much of what we do, so many of our actions are um, intended to to secure that acceptance and to keep it, to maintain it. But I think we also want this. We want the universe to accept us as well or, or for us to feel like we belong within it, like we, we have a purpose, we fit in the scheme of things. And I was reflecting on the times where, when I have felt this profound rightness, this belonging, certainly in Zazen. And when I first started practicing, when I first encountered Zazen, it really felt like a homecoming. It felt like returning to what was most basic, most fundamental in me. And, you know, I had considered becoming a number of things. I had considered becoming a doctor, a psychotherapist, a teacher, high school, college. Then I went to college and I changed my mind. And I would look around me and I would think... We need a lot of healing. Why? Why is that? And I sensed that I had to start with this body, with my body, my mind. And when I was in in college, you know, I studied Tai Chi and Shiatsu, and I began doing yoga, and I read Freud and Jung and Kant and um, Herigl. Hannah Arendt, who said, education is the point at which we decide whether we love the world enough to assume responsibility for it. And at one point I was traveling. I was, I was still in college. I had taken time off, actually, and I was traveling, and I went to a bookstore in Madrid looking for something. I didn't know what. And I picked up the Tao Te Ching in Spanish, And I fell in love with it. It made sense. It spoke to me. And later I found a book on Zen, and I fell in love with it. It made sense. And so I began to do Zazen, and I thought pretty early on, you know, this is the way to address the human problem. I could try to heal the symptoms, or I can try to uproot it at its source. 
And I, and I felt that Zazen could actually help me to do that. And so over time, I, I experienced that place of, of rightness, of perfection, of belonging. And I remember saying not too long ago to my teacher, you know, if I died right now, I would be okay with that. I mean, there are a few things I'd like to do before that, but, but this sense of feeling utterly a part of. Thank you. And so I have also felt this sense of fundamental, fundamental rightness a few times in, in my running. And it's one of the reasons that, I, that I've always been so interested in the relationship between movement and stillness. Because how to, um, you know, it's one thing to experience it in, in zazen, but if you don't experience it in the rest of your life, um, then it doesn't necessarily function. And so, so to be able to take that into activity, or, or rather to discover it in activity because it's there, and, and I've had it, and lately I've been having it uh, while swimming. I've been swimming more regularly. And there's something about swimming particularly because it, the feeling is so tangible, it's so physical, it's such a felt sense, this, this undeniable feeling of, of feeling held, supported, supported, buoyed by, by the water, which is me. It's in my molecules, it's in my bones, and my organs, and sinews. And, and the, the boundary between me and what is supposedly not me is, is um, well, it's more permeable. And I find that nowhere else can I relax so completely, so quickly. My comfort dreams are dreams about swimming. This, this kind of total immersion in being that is, that is very uh, effortless. And so when I'm, when I'm there, I have this cap I pull down over my ears so I can't really hear very much. And I have these mirrored goggles where I can't really see very much either. And that's part of the, the point. I can't see the people next to me. So I don't get lost and, you know, are they going faster or not? And... Um, Recently, I was, I, when I, I uh, last month I didn't do Sashin, I was working and I went swimming every day very early. And there's a very dedicated group uh, of swimmers who go at, at six in the morning when the pool opens, they're, they're there. And I was talking to one of them who goes five days a week and swims a mile. And she was telling me about everybody else and about her relationships with them and and she said at one point that she had hurt herself because she was competing. Oh, she, she, she confessed that she was um, uh, racing me at one point. And I have to confess that I did feel relieved because I had noticed she was kind of going fast. And, you know, she's probably 20 years older than me. And so I was thinking, I, I don't know. What about this? <laughs> um, and so she said that. And she's like, you know, it, it helps my mile go faster. So I felt a little relieved. 
And she said, but, you know, I hurt myself because I was raising somebody next to me one day, and I pushed very hard off the wall, and I, and I pulled my LCL. And then she said, you know, I can be extremely competitive about the most unimportant things. And I thought to myself, oh, I can't relate to that at all. <laughs> and then I was thinking, you know, actually, I've come to feel that there aren't actually any important things worth competing for. It's taken me a long time to arrive there. Not things that aren't worth doing, certainly studying, throwing yourself into wholeheartedly, learning about, improving in. Competing, though, I'm not so sure. And that's why uh, swimming has been so healing lately, because there really there is no other. You know, there's, no, there's no time, there's, no, there's nowhere to go. There's no past. There's no future. And there's really absolutely nothing for me to attain. And the only blip in this is this, my scheming. How can I, how can I do this more? How can I do this more often? <clears throat> and so the fourth Bodhisattva vow, the Buddha way is unattainable. I vow to attain it. It's saying that that the way, that this path that we've chosen to tread together is, in fact, unattainable. We we cannot complete it. There's no finish line. There's no ribbon that you're going to snap, you know, as you you run across, you know, your your chest, your arms raised, and the thought in your mind, you know, "I, I did it. This isn't like that. We could say in one way it's never ending, but it also doesn't begin. We do take the first step on the path, but the path itself has no beginning and it has no end. It started before this present life, and it will continue when this life ends. And I was reminded of, of Zeno's paradox of Achilles and the tortoise, Zeno, as you may know, is a Greek philosopher and the founder of Stoicism. And he said, among many things, that motion is an illusion. So that if you have a a foot race with Achilles and a tortoise, um, in which Achilles gives the tortoise a 100-meter head start, if you assume that they're moving at constant speeds, Achilles very fast, the tortoise very slowly, at a certain point, Achilles will reach the point at which the tortoise started, right? At the same time, the tortoise will have moved ahead. And so every time Achilles reaches a point which the, where, where the tortoise has already been, and of course the distance between the two is getting shorter and, and shorter, because there's an infinite number of points that Achilles must get to where the tortoise has been, Achilles can never overtake it, can never finish the race. And this is what the path is like. But, you know, in case we think, you know, what a drag, I think really it's, it's this fact, the fact that of, of its vastness that leads, that is that sense of belonging, that... that allows or, or 
lets that sense of belonging be born, be seen, be felt. We hear all the time, there is nothing outside of it. There is nothing that is excluded, that is left out. And as long as there is something to attain, there's something to to strive for, there's always something just out of reach, like the tortoise. But this vow is saying the Buddha way is unattainable. Another way to say it would be that it is complete. It's, It's of one piece. It's whole. There is no lack in it whatsoever. And if we really actually feel, you know, for a moment, what those words are saying, what is contained in that unattainable, because we hear them so often, and it's so easy to think, yeah, yeah, you know, I get it, no lack, perfection. But imagine actually living in that place, living from that place. Imagine actually feeling, feeling, believing, truly believing that you don't have to fix yourself in any way, any way at all, that you don't have to fix others, that you don't have to have them conform to your idea of them. And of course, this doesn't mean there's no practice. It doesn't mean there's no realization. It just means there's no lack. Imagine Master Dogen's no creature ever falls short of its own completeness. Wherever it stands, it never fails to cover the ground, being your ground, your truth. Imagine it being the way things actually are. Would there be any room left for conflict, for resentment, for fear, for competition? Would there be any room for self-doubt, for second-guessing yourself, for confusion about who you are and your place in the world, in this life. I was reading a a book recently that had a a little bit of an odd story. It's a book about um, Brunelleschi's dome, the, the dome in Santa Maria del Fiore in Florence, which is an incredible story in itself, is the biggest dome that's ever been built. It weighs 37,000 tons. And it's actually two domes built overlapping each other with a space in between. And what was incredible at the time was its size, its shape. It's actually octagonal instead of circular. And it was the the fact that Brunelleschi built it without a wooden uh, centering without a wooden frame, an inner frame, which means if you try to imagine that as you're building this huge dome hundreds of feet up in the air, it's reaching the, an angle in which normally it would collapse into itself. And so he had to figure out you know, the, the physics of the forces acting on it and design the bricks and the beams that held it together in precisely the right way to hold it in space. And he did. And not only that, he built, designed and built all of the machinery to get millions of bricks up, you know, these, these couple hundred feet, I believe. So that is incredible in itself. But then, um, and, and, you know, as I was reading this, I was thinking, 
the wonder, really, the wonder of what we are capable of doing as human beings. And how is it? How is it that we still haven't really yet figured out how to get along? The, 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 the incredible mastery, knowledge that we have accumulated over time about the physical world and that we still so little understand ourselves and each other. But this, this story is... Um, Brunelleschi was, he was actually very competitive and held grudges a bit. And so he had some kind of social gathering, and one of his friends by the name of Manetto didn't go. And Brunelleschi didn't like that. So he decided he was going to play this little prank on him. He um, uh, broke into his house when Manetto wasn't there and locked it. And so when Manetto came home at night, Brunelleschi impersonated him, uh, imitated his voice, and told him to go away. And I guess he did such a good job that Manetto left, confused. <laughs> and so he goes off to the, you know, the square, and two people come by, his friends, and um, address him as Matteo, someone else. So... He's confused, and he says, no, no, I'm I'm Manetto. And they insist that he is Matteo. And as they're talking, arguing, a policeman comes by, identifies him as Matteo, and takes him to jail because he's apparently, he's in debt. He goes to jail. All the prisoners address him as Matteo. And now he's starting to really be concerned and, you know, he's in jail. He's been thrown in there, and so he spends the night um, not sleeping. And he's beginning, he really is beginning to wonder, did something happen? Did I wake up as someone else? And the next morning, Mateo's brothers, the two brothers come, identify him as their sibling, pay the fine, and get him out. And they go have a picnic, and he's still insisting, you know, I'm, I'm really, I'm, I'm Manetto. And they, they think he's crazy. They pretend that he's crazy. And so at this point, he's really beside himself. They give him some drugs. He falls asleep. And they take him to his home and place him reversed on the bed so his feet are on the pillow and his head is on the other side. And they mess up. He's a carpenter. They, they rearrange all his tools. He wakes up, and he sees he's home again, and he sees all his, his tools rearranged, and he's, he's wondering, what the hell is going on? Matteo comes by and says to him, you wouldn't believe I just had the strangest dream. I dreamt that I was someone else. I dreamt that I was a carpenter and that my tool shop, my workshop had been rearranged and I needed to put all my, my tools back in place. And Manetto doesn't say anything, but he believed for the rest of his life that for a day and a night, he had become someone else. And I guess I was thinking about this because I woke up on Wednesday, I think it was, almost as if I had been having a conversation with myself with a fully formed thought. I opened my eyes, and the thought in my mind was, um, what makes my experience mine? Which, of course, is another way of saying, you know, what makes me, me? And how come I continue to be me? 
after sleep. If I went uh, under an anesthesia, I would come back, presumably still me. We understand that consciousness is, but we don't know why or how, really. We don't yet understand it. And I think is one of the big reasons, then, why so much conflict? Why we can really do such wonders with this, with this world, and we still understand so little, so little about ourselves. There's a, a dialogue between a, um, a student and a, and a teacher. I mean, it's really a koan, but even at the level of just a question and answer, it, uh, it's, it's telling. And the student says, you know, Daitsu Chishu Buddha did zazen on a bodhisattva for ten kalpas for a very, very long time. Buddha Dharma was not manifested, nor did he attain Buddhahood. Why? Why was it? And the teacher just says, your question is excellent. What a great question. And the student says, well, yes, but he practiced all this time. You know, why didn't he attain Buddhahood? And the teacher just says, because he did not attain Buddhahood. And, you know, is this just a thing that we say? Is this just a Buddhist thing? We, we um, vow to do the impossible? And why didn't he attain Buddhahood? And, you know, we, we, we can say, because we hear this all the time, well, he's already a Buddha, and we're already Buddhas. You cannot attain enlightenment because we already have it. And that's basic Buddhism. But if that is true... If we can say, you know, we are really already Buddhas, why does life feel so difficult? Why do we suffer so? Why can we understand that we can't turn ourselves into Buddhas and still struggle so much with, to, to really have that reality function in our day-to-day lives? I mean, if the self is empty... Why can't I just let it go? Just let it go. Why do I have to strive so much in a path of essentially no striving? Why is it that even when I gain a a little bit of insight or a lot of insight, I find myself still doing the same things I've done before? It was interesting that that Gokan brought up emotions and dealing with emotions. I, too, had been thinking about them. And I was just reading a a neuroscientist who said that, you know, an emotion, the, the lifespan of an emotion is 90 seconds, a minute and a half. That's the time it takes to move through the body. After that, it takes thought to keep it going. Isn't that interesting? So a pure, raw emotion will change, will pass in 90 seconds. But we can, if we choose to, keep it going for days, weeks. I saw a New Yorker cartoon, a man and woman, presumably a couple, are sitting on the couch, and he turns to her and says, so what should we belabor tonight? (laughs) And I was thinking about this in relationship to the path and thinking, you know, 
I think that's probably one of the main reasons why we have such difficulty, because we have such difficulty dealing with our emotions. And I, and I happened um, upon a, just a, a passage in the, in the sutras that is saying, you know, there are four basic obstructions to, to wisdom, to realizing wisdom. Uh, one is primordial ignorance. Two is dualistic clinging. Three is emotional distraction. And four is karmic accumulation. I think I would add competitiveness. I would make a fifth category in and of its... I mean, it, it contains all of these other four, but in our culture, I think it deserves its own category. And uh, a Tibetan teacher, Anyan Rinpoche, was speaking about um, emotions and the difficulty in general that Westerners especially have in dealing with them. And he was saying, he's, he was saying, you know, I grew up in Tibet, a culture that is very uh, group-focused, not self-focused. And so we don't struggle with emotions in the same way. And I'm sure he wasn't saying, you know, they don't have them. He was just saying it's not such a source of conflict. And he was saying, you know, we, here in the West, we feel, we, we believe our emotions to be so true. And, you know, they are true in the sense that we're feeling them. But I think what he was saying is that we don't have to believe every emotion and um, act it out. We, we have a sense of, of entitlement, you know, that if I have an emotion, I should express it. If I'm feeling sad or angry or uncomfortable, I want you to know it. And he was saying, what if that is not necessary? What if you don't have to believe in every emotion that you have? I mean, we would never, ever even consider acting out every single one of our thoughts. So why is that different with emotion? I mean, imagine, that would be horrific. (laughs) But why do we feel that's different with emotion somehow? Now, he was not saying that we should not feel them, that we should suppress them. And I saw another cartoon. You know how things sometimes just kind of fall, fall into place. I saw another cartoon. There's a huge barn covered in, in chains and padlocks. And the farmer is standing next to her and is saying to his son, this is the barn where we keep our feelings. If a feeling comes to you, bring it out here and lock it up. And so on one hand, we can belabor. On another hand, we can suppress. Is there another way? And the, the image that comes to me is of opening all the doors, opening all the windows, kind of like now, and saying to an emotion, okay, come on in, and let it just, let it just pass through, let it move through, let it wash you clean. So that perhaps the only thing that, that it leaves behind, on occasion it, it leaves behind a, Recognition of something you need to do. There's something you need to do to take care of this. Or just more simply, because often they just pass. Very often they just pass. And just leaving you with a little bit of, of understanding, oh, this is what an emotion is. It is not different from any other thing. It arises. It is. It passes. 
oh, this is maybe how to deal with it, to allow it. And I feel that if we really, really allow a thought or an emotion, if we truly allow it, we don't even have to let it go. It, it releases of itself because it's been acknowledged. So the only thing we have to do is not hold on. And in, in, in one way, I realize, you know, I'm making it sound like it's very easy, and it's not, not at all. It's not easy at all. I had a, a session some, a few years ago, I was monitor, uh, where I was, in, and I was in a lot of pain, uh, emotional pain. And I had one period of zazen that I almost couldn't stand to be in my body. It was so um, unbearable. And it was the closest I've ever been to just getting up and, and walking out. And I just, I was embarrassed to do that. Afterwards, I thought, well, nobody would have noticed. If you're the monitor, you, nobody would have noticed. <laughs> so I lost my chance. <laughs> But I didn't think of that at the time. <laughs> and I thought, well, okay, I'm not going to walk out, so what am I going to do? Um, let me find a way here. And, you know, there was a, you could say that the, the bare emotion was grief, but there was a lot of overlays of, of anger and resentment and, and a lot of stories that I felt, you know, would, were completely justified, and anybody looking at them would agree that they were justified. You know, so I could stay there for quite a while if I chose to do that. And at a certain point, I remember deciding that I didn't want to do that, deciding that I could perhaps uh, drop, as Hojinosho said, that I could perhaps see what was under the emotion. And so I, I did that, and I very much imagined that as, as, as a as a line, I've used this image before of, a, of deep sea diving. And in, in some forms of it, you hold to a line. Right? And it was very much the sensation of moving deeper and deeper down. And then I would go back. It was so unbearable, you know, the, the, the pressure, all that water. And uh, it was so unbearable that I would kind of snap into a story again. And then I would just say to myself, wait, 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 that's a story. What's the feeling? What's just the raw sensation of this? And I just kept dropping and dropping. Until it, in one way, you could say it killed me. Another way to say it would be that it, that it uh, softened me completely, that I surrendered to it. And then it was okay. It was truly okay. It was right. And it passed. And I was fine, and I knew in that moment, no matter what happens, I'm going to be fine. Katagiri Roshi said, in the relative, we are completely responsible. In the absolute, we are completely forgiven. Being completely forgiven is the Buddha way. It's unattainable. Being completely responsible is I vow to attain it. Thich Nhat Hanh translates this, this vow as, however incomparable the mystery of interbeing, I vow to surrender to it freely. And that word surrender is not used very much in, in Buddhism, perhaps at all. 
And, and, and of course, it has that connotation of surrendering to an enemy, to an opponent. But it does appear quite often, in fact, in the, in the accounts of the Christian and some of the Sufi mystics as well. It means to cease resistance, to abandon oneself entirely to. How? By accepting. Without judgment, without resistance, without guilt, without shame. Because that's so often how we keep an emotion going. We have the emotion, and then we have all of our, as Gokhan was saying, all of our feelings and our thoughts about the fact that we're having that emotion. This is simply allowing it. Allowing it to be what it is. And it is this very act of allowing it that gives rise to that possibility of of experiencing that, that rightness. Of, of really seeing that we've that we never really have been apart from anything else that this feeling of being of being alienated of being alone in the sense of solitary lonely abandoned it's actually contradictory to what it means to be a human being i mean it's it's like a it's like an um, an ocean wave looking around and saying where is everyone? Why, why am I the only one here? While this vast body of water is supporting her. It is her. And from the perspective of the wave, separation is not only possible, it feels like the reality. It feels like truth. From the perspective of the ocean, the question doesn't even arise. You know, there's no need to strive to become water. There's no need to check that you're still water. You know, we're not constantly asking, am I Suisse? Am I still Suisse? Am I still Suisse? Unless your friend is Brunelleschi. (laughs) 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 You know, we wouldn't do this. But that's exactly what we do in Zazen, isn't it? Am I here? Am I still here? Am I still here? Am I doing it? How am I doing? Not so good, it seems. It's hopeless. I'm hopeless. And we think it's our fault. Or we think it's the teacher's fault. Or it's the Buddha's fault. The Dharma's fault. And we insist. Somehow we we derive some strange comfort from finding fault. But traveling the Buddha way and trying to mark your progress is like like putting a a notch. I think that's in one of the, the, the koans, in one of the stories. Putting a notch on the side of the boat to mark a good fishing spot. How much longer until I realize my water nature? When will I be done? And what what if I'm never done? What if I, of all the waves, don't have water nature? Can we, as Daidoroshi used to say all the time, you know, can we give ourselves permission to really be ourselves? Can we not be afraid of our belonging? Can we not be afraid of being so close? So close to one another and every other thing. Can we not be in such a hurry to be done, to be finished? And Because I think that, that, that hurry, certainly from having experienced it, I think it just covers up fear. Fear that we might not 
measure up. But let's say that, it, that, it, that was even possible, that we were done at some point. What then? Like, what, will, what would we do? Where would we go? That race between Achilles and the tortoise, you know, it's not that Achilles is unable to finish the race. He's perfectly, perfectly capable. I mean, he's perfectly able of body and mind. He's not able to finish the race because every time he takes a step, that step extends in all directions. It fills all of space and time. He can't see the beginning. He can't see the end. And that's, that's exactly right. Let me end with this poem by May Sarton. It's called Of Mollusks. As the tide rises, the closed mollusk opens a fraction to the ocean's food, bathed in its riches. Do not ask what force would do or if force could. A knife is of no use against a fortress. You might break it to pieces as gulls do. No, only the rising tide and its slow progress opens the shell. Lovers, I tell you true. You who have held yourselves closed hard against warm sun and wind, shelled up in fierce and hostile to a touch or tender word, the ocean rises, salt as unshed tears. Now you are floated on this gentle flood that cannot force or be forced. Welcome food, Salt as your tears, the rich ocean's blood. Eat, rest, be nourished on the tide of love. For more talks, To get information about Zuise Sensei's upcoming teachings or to join her email list, please visit vanessazuisegoddard.org.